God, thank you that though we can't see, you've given us sight. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our neediness, you've met us with great compassion and grace and mercy. But even as we open the text and read it this morning, we see that it necessitates a posture in our hearts of coming before the text and seeing that we can't see apart from you. That we're in need of you to show us truth. And so I pray that you would move by your spirit to open our eyes to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a culture uh, that is a cultural moment that's decreasingly interested in the theme that our passage addresses today. So this is a timely theme for that very reason. It's a timely theme that again begins to develop in John 8 because here you have Jesus essentially saying, I'm the one who's uniquely qualified. I'm the one who's uniquely qualified to make the claims that I make, to be the one through whom you can now know truth, to give you sight, to give sight to your eyes, to make it so that you can hear and understand the things that I'm saying to you. Like, I'm the one uniquely qualified to do all of this. In other words, when it comes to someone's testimony, truth matters. Truth matters. Right authority matters. But in our current cultural moment, the vast majority of readers or consumers of content, consumers of media, do not really care if the testimony they read is true. Nor do they care if the person writing has any kind of credentials or authority from which to make the claims they make, any kind of evidence to support the claims that they're making. Instead, our culture tends to read and consume media interested mostly in whether or not claims people make fit nicely within the scope of their own personal narrative, a particular narrative. You know, if it fits the narrative, great. You know, and this isn't, this isn't directed at one particular side of the political aisle because honestly I think there's a lot of duplicity here. I think people on the right can very easily uh, point the finger and, and recognize what I'm describing when it's happening on the left and people on the left can very easily point the fig finger and recognize when it's happening on the right but there's very little attention given to whether or not this is something that I struggle with. I would, I would argue this morning this is a, a cultural problem that's shared on all sides. If a particular claim or statement fits the narrative, it doesn't matter where the information comes from. It doesn't matter whether the information can be demonstrated to be accurate. If a person has any kind of right authority to make the claim, it doesn't matter if there's an absence of evidence that would make such a claim not hold up in any kind of a court of law. The claim's likely to be believed. Why? Because it fits the narrative, you know? In the same way, if it departs from our narrative, it doesn't really matter if the person who's making the claim has unique qualifications and authority. It doesn't matter if there's a, a mountain of evidence for the claim that's being made. It's likely to be rejected in our time or ignored. Again, not on the basis of evidence or authority or truth, but on the basis of whether or not it matches our narrative. Okay. And here in John 8, you have a similar theme playing out because... Jesus is demonstrating, you know, that he's the only one qualified to make this claim. And yet, 
The people push back on the claim that he makes, not because Jesus hasn't up to this point demonstrated his power and authority, not because he hasn't given signs and wonders that would point people to the truthfulness of the claims that he's making, but because his claims simply don't match their own narrative, what they've always wanted to believe about who they are and who God is and what God certainly must do if he ever does send his Messiah into the world to save them. They have a particular narrative. (laughs) Yet as we'll continue to read in the text next week, Jesus says things like this. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In other words, You are in no position to judge between truth and falsehood without me. You think you have light, but you're blind. You live in darkness. And yet you claim sight. You claim that you can see. I'm the only one who can do that for you. I'm the only one who can open up your eyes, Jesus tells us. True authority comes from me. And and listen, this is why our sermons at Gospel Life Church They're not primarily based on some opinion or narrative around something that's happening in our culture, you know. But rather, they're entirely exposited. That's the hope, right? They're entirely exposited. They come directly from the very word of God to us, from Jesus himself, his his word to us. And this is actually why, I mean, we see an example of it, of what I'm talking about. It's why we actually find ourselves starting this morning in verse 12 of chapter 8 rather than in chapter 7 verse 53 and in the first 12 verses of John. Let me just explain real briefly because some of you might have this question. Uh, Here in this next section of text following after what Paul Burr preached last week we find in most of our Bibles in some form or another this very familiar narrative about a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus into upholding what they think The law says, teaches, you know, by cajoling Jesus essentially to condemn and stone, participate in stoning this this woman to death. Jesus speaks these now well-known words, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone, be, be the first to throw a stone, some form of those words. Those words then express a truth that cuts so deeply in the heart of the people that they leave without stoning her, and then Jesus says something like, go and sin no more, right? Go and sin no more. Most Christians are actually really familiar with the narrative songs have been sung, and and it is. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful story with real gospel clarity in a lot of ways, but the reason we're not including it in our preaching of John is because I don't think it's in the Bible. Now, you might say, what do you mean? It's right here in my Bible. Okay. Um, So the the vast majority of your Bibles will, you know, rightly either not include it at all in the main body of text, which I actually think is the most accurate and helpful and least confusing way of dealing with this passage, but they'll keep it in some form in the footnotes. I think that's the way to go. Or they'll place it in brackets, uh, the way they would place other words that aren't actually in the earliest manuscripts. And they'll say something like at the heading, and this is what I think most ESV typesets do, the earliest manuscripts, like in all caps it says at the top, the earliest manuscripts 
do not include 753 to 811. I think very, very helpful, probably not enough, not strong enough. But okay, Christians have, um, let me just start out by saying, Christians have an enormous historical and contextual ground from which we can trust that what we're reading in our Bibles is actually what was written by the original author. Because unlike any other book of its kind, we have well over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, many of them very early manuscripts, that place them within a generation of the original author. And, and the more early manuscripts we get over time, you know, the more, the more discoveries that are made, the more validation we actually have that the scriptures have been carefully preserved. That this isn't something that's made these major diversions and turns over the centuries, right? Which is what, which is what liberals, the liberal-leaning uh, theologian had believed or claimed for years, but which was eroded away by a mountain of evidence of you know, manuscript discovery after manuscript discovery. So, you know, listen, um, that's the kind of manuscript data we have, right? Uh, it hasn't been changed. Having said that, we know with certainty that some scribes came along later, added things to the text, in order to either give some context to something that they thought was missing, or they read a word and they're like, well, that can't be right. That's confusing. And so they changed it. You know, they were trying to explain something, so they added a few lines. Okay. Um, but, but listen, again, the good news here is we have this enormous body of evidence from which we can see those additions, and we can kind of see this tree of copies going down, and we can kind of identify, okay, it's happening over here in this manuscript tradition much later on. This was an outlier. We can see that it was changed here. Some people continue to copy it, but it's pretty obvious that it was added around this point in time. That's the kind of manuscript data we have to work with here. So saying the things I'm saying this morning shouldn't diminish our trust in the scriptures. I think you should bolster it, Okay. But here the evidence for ruling this out as a part of the scriptures is just enormous, all right? Um, which is why the vast majority of scholars, including the chair of the ESV translation committee, will all agree on this. It's, it's missing from the earliest manuscripts. Every single early church father who, who goes verse by verse through John just completely skips, omits this section. It's almost like it didn't actually exist at that point because it didn't, right? So um, we actually don't find any Greek church father commenting on the story until the 12th century, just to give you an idea as to whether or not it's seen as being part of the scriptures by the earliest Christians. You know, in, in um, the few manuscripts that do include it, it differs from manuscript to manuscript where it gets placed. Some place it here, some place it in John 7.44, some at 7.36, some at John 21, at the end of John 21, at the very end of, the, of John's gospel, and some actually place it in Luke 21, completely different gospel account. In addition, it has these features that almost read like what scholars refer to often as the Gnostic Gospels. Kind of a, doesn't read like the rest of John. It has these bizarre details like Jesus kneeling and riding mysteriously, something that we're not supposed to know about or that we don't, that we don't know what he's writing. So um, the enormous evidence at, at every level, just scratching the surface. But let me just quickly say two things I am saying, three things I'm not. The two things I'm saying is I don't believe it's part of the original scriptures. That's number one. Number two, so I'm not going to preach it. Three things I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying you can't trust your Bibles. As I already said, the reality is we have such strong data 
from early manuscripts from which to make decisive calls like this one, to, to put things in brackets or to limit things to footnotes, that it should strengthen our trust that what has been written has been accurately preserved. It's no reason to not trust your Bibles. You can and should trust your Bible. Number two, I'm not saying that other pastors who choose to preach this passage are in sin. Okay, um, I know a lot of sermons have been preached on this. I disagree. I disagree pretty strongly, but I don't think it's a sin issue. I don't think it's a breaking fellowship issue. While I disagree, the primary reason I've made the decision for us as the lead pastor whose primary job is to steward the preaching, uh, to skip the section, is because my conscience won't allow it. I don't believe it's scripture, so I don't believe it should be the basis for a sermon or Bible study at Gospel Life Church. I, don't, I think we need to be careful not to position something as God's word, authoritative, when very, very likely it wasn't, okay? The mountain of evidence is that it wasn't. So I'm not saying it's sinful, but my conscience won't allow it. And uh, so number three, I'm not saying this event didn't take place, actually. While the vast majority of scholars agree that it's not in the scriptures, most scholars also appear to agree that something like this probably did take place. We see tellings of something like this from early church fathers, not commentating on scripture, but just talking about the life of Christ and events from the life of Christ. Uh, some of the, it doesn't match exactly with what happens in John 7, but some of these bigger parts of the story, woman caught in adultery, crowd wanting to stone her, Jesus rebuking the crowd, extending grace. All of that may very well be historical. It certainly fits within the scope of Jesus' teaching and ministry, but the reason we don't include it is because of the theme from the passage that we're about to look at together this morning. It gives us an argument to not include this text. Jesus has ultimate authority. We do not. So when we preach, it does carry authority, but not because of Jeremy Deck. Not because of Matthew Holmes or Pete Johnson or Justin Weavers. You know, not, not because of any of the... The, the, not because of Paul Burr, not because of the men who, who, who stand in the pulpit. When we preach, it carries authority, hopefully, because what we express week after week is, is simply the word of God proclaimed to us. Like, this is the reason we love pulpits so much at Gospel Life Church, because here you have, like, the pulpit. What's the job of the pulpit? It's to hold the word. What is it that stands between the preacher and the, and the people of God each week? It's the word of God, because this is where the authority comes from, not me. I hide behind this, right? So you don't see me and my authority. You see the authority of the scriptures, that which stands between us, that which I'm teaching. So pulpits, okay? Pulpits are a product I can stand behind. Okay. Um, so Jesus, here in the text, gives us this demonstration that he is uniquely qualified to show us truth, that we're uniquely unqualified to show us, to, to, to see truth without him. And we'll see that thesis depended, defended in five parts of the narrative. So let's begin in verse 12 with the primary claim of the narrative. The primary claim, verse 12. So let's look at the text. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Okay. I am the light of the world. Let's remember where we ended last week. You can actually see 
how this text directly connects back to the end of chapter 7. We see the Pharisees have inquired, you know, why didn't this temple guard bring Jesus back? Right? They, they sent this temple guard to make a formal arrest of Jesus. They, they came back empty-handed. And Do you remember what their response was? No one ever spoke like this man. And since it's, it's not yet the hour in which Jesus would go to the cross, since he's completely in control of what's happening here, no formal arrest happens yet. So Jesus just continues to teach them in the midst of this Feast of Tabernacles. And so he speaks. He speaks in the midst of their confusion about him. He speaks in the midst of their inability to see him rightly. He shines light in the midst of darkness. He says, I am the light of the world. And that's the primary claim of the passage. Jesus is telling us, I'm the light of the world. And we should say again at this point, here we have the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been at the Feast of Tabernacles since the beginning of chapter 7, right? And here at the feast, they're celebrating light. There's this symbol of light that goes forth. The lighting of four huge lampstands in the temple court. The holding of burning torches and dancing and singing praises. In fact, there'd be a liturgical reading of Old Testament scriptures such as Zechariah chapter 14 as these lampstands light up the courtyard and extend out into Jerusalem as these torches are burning and people are, are singing praise words like this are being read then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him on that day there shall be no light cold or frost and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. This actually brings to mind the end of the book of Revelation, which we preached before we preached Zechariah, describing how in the end, in the consummated kingdom, there would be no night. Do you remember why? Because the Lamb of God would be the light of the people. That's what Zechariah is also saying. A light would come that would be our light forever. That would be light to the people of God forever. So they're reading this text. This text filled with future hope. The future hope of God's light shining into darkness. They're reading it at this feast where there's this physical celebration of light shining all around them. The lampstands shining out. And it's into this context that Jesus now says, I'm the light of the world. In fact, a lot of Scholars and historians suggest that on the last day of this festival, there, there was no light. The light was extinguished in preparation for uh, going back into d darkness. And, and so it's perhaps into the midst of that gap that Jesus declares, I'm the light of the world. You need light? You want light? You desire light? I'm the light of the world. In other words, all this is about me. You know, that there's not a lot of confusion about it here in the midst of the people. They're upset about what Jesus is saying precisely because um, of the weight that it carries as they hear it. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, in the context of such a powerful ritual, Jesus' declaration must have come with stunning force. He doesn't let it hang in the air as an abstract teaching. Right? This isn't this isn't some kind of a generality that 
is confusing. Jesus isn't speaking in some kind of like, some kind of confusing puzzle that you have to figure out. As we said before, this phrase, I am, is a means from which Jesus makes a claim of divinity. The very name of God spoken out of the burning bush in Exodus 3, proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. If you want to remember more on that, we preached through it in, in chapter 6 and a little bit in chapter 7. I'd, I'd encourage you to go back. He's revealing himself to us as God. But just in case, you know, just in case the people are missing that divine self-disclosure, he, he adds this to it. He says, I am, I am the light of the world. Light in the Old Testament was regularly equated with God himself, the pillar of light, demonstrating the glory of God's very presence, leading God's people out of the wilderness and toward the land of promise, of hope and peace and life. These people would sing from the Psalms words that expressed this idea, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The word of God is a light to the path of those who cherish instruction. And look, in addition to this, while the passage in Zechariah talks about a consummated kingdom that was perfected in the end when Jesus comes again and fully and finally has victory over death and judgment, we haven't come to that point yet. There is still in our world today much darkness in the human heart apart from Christ. And so the people who hear these words must also hear, as they're being spoken, echoes of the words that Paul Burr spoke last week from Isaiah chapter 9. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Here the people are walking in darkness. Like we see an example of it that we'll get to in a minute. They're deceived. Their hearts are darkened. They're blind to spiritual reality. And yet Jesus proclaims he is the light for which they have been waiting. That all of this is about him. And this is exactly how John's gospel began. Do you remember in chapter 1? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Like John begins his gospel account talking about this light that's breaking into the world. But you know, here in chapter 8, the people are largely rejecting his witness. They're rejecting his testimony. And so we actually see more. It makes us think again about how John concluded that verse in chapter 1. The light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we've been seeing throughout chapter 7 and into chapter 8. The very darkness described in chapter 1, and yet the very light that's been proclaimed, which now shines into that darkness. Jesus is saying, it's all about me. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that grants true spiritual sight. I'm the one that enables you to see what's true about you and about God. I'm, I'm the giver of, of light. I'm the one that this entire festival is describing. I'm the light of the world. That's the primary claim. It is an exclusive, universal claim. It applies to everyone to either believe or to reject, and it's only in him. That's, the, that's what he's saying. 
But we move right away then, secondly, from this primary claim to its immediate consequence. Immediate consequence. Look at verse 12 again. And again Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here Jesus says, listen, he says, my light doesn't come to you as some inconsequential bit of happiness you can place along the side of your life. That's disconnected from everyday life, really, but it's kind of an add-on. Though I think that's how a lot of us view Jesus. You know, it's easy, even for Christians, for us to like nicely compartmentalize bits of our life. So that Jesus is, is mostly inconsequential. Where is he consequential? He's qu- consequential on Sundays. He's consequential when I get together with other Christians. He's consequential when I open my, my Bibles to hear my pastor, teacher, preach. He's consequential as I read and sing the liturgy. Maybe he's consequential midweek when I go to a Bible study with my friends. Monday nights or, or Wednesday nights. Maybe he's consequential as I get together with my community group. Like there are aspects of my life in which there's a sense of consequence. Like Jesus is going to dictate how I speak or what, what I do. But then there are other aspects of my life that are kind of mine. And Jesus is mostly disconnected from that. And even more than that, I think largely it's easy for us to, to view Jesus as inconsequential in every area. Like someone who comes to reinforce what I already believe about the world. Someone who comes to be a kind of add-on to what I already have going on in my life. Not someone who comes to radically change and transform my life. A friend, a buddy, who will always accept me and everything about who I am and what I do, regardless of whether it's good for me. Just kind of an inconsequential feel-goodism that allows me to drill deeper into whatever I want to do. But Jesus cuts that off at the pass immediately. Though I think the human heart would would take us in that way naturally, Jesus cuts that off at the pass immediately. It's just like, it's not what light accomplishes. Light doesn't work that way, and we're going to see that in a minute. Whoever follows me, he says, won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's like, imagine someone this morning who's born blind. They've only known darkness, They're finally given the gift of sight. You know, we're going to see an example of it in just one chapter. Chapter 9. So we don't don't have to imagine it for long. But uh, for the moment, let's think of a person or group of people who are born blind. They've only known darkness. And one day they're given the gift of full sight. They can see everything. They can see beauty and colors and richness and depth and sunsets. The faces of their loved ones. They're, They're no longer stumbling around in the dark. And yet imagine for a minute that the minute they're given this sight... They reach for a blindfold. They choose to go through life without sight. You know, that's, nobody would do that. Like Light fundamentally transforms darkness. Sight fundamentally transforms the way we walk, the decisions we make. You know? And Jesus says that he fundamentally transforms all of life. All of life. What he has accomplished for us actually brings change and transformation to everything. He's not in the business of being grafted into what we already have going on or reinforcing what the human heart already wants. He's come to transform everything. That's the very nature of his metaphor here. You know, our our mission statement, a gospel life, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus. 
for his glory and the city's good, rooting all of life in the gospel, that, the, that from the gospel brings a kind of change that not only transforms me, but that flows out into our city, into our neighborhood, into the places in which we work, into our family life, everything. One cannot claim to have the light while also continuing to stumble around in the dark. One cannot claim Christ while continuing just to live as though they don't know him. So we see a primary claim, I am the light of the world, this exclusive, universal claim of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We see also then this immediate consequence that he comes to transform everything, that, the, that, that light operates this way, it transforms everything. That leads us thirdly now to, a, to the repeated contention that we find throughout John's gospel. Repeated contention, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. This is once again a question of Jesus' authority. Essentially, they're saying, and we're going to see this, you know, this is a repeated contention, and it's a contention actually that as we progress through John, it escalates and escalates and escalates. And essentially, they're saying, who are you to say these things? You're just a guy making these claims. Anyone can make wild claims. Anyone can make wild claims. You have no authority to say the things you're saying. And in some ways, you know, we might hear that and say, well, that's a good point because it's true. Anyone can make wild claims, you know. And it very much lacks wisdom to believe a claim just because somebody claims it, right? Just because somebody's saying something. At the same time, there's an absurdity about this contention from the people that Jesus is about to address. The absurdity is really found in the metaphor. Light always bears witness about itself. So they're saying, you can't bear witness about yourself. And Jesus is saying, don't you know who I am? I'm... I'm the light of the world. Light always bears witness about itself. If, if you're in a dark place in which you can't even see your own hand in front of you and someone gets out a, a bright flashlight and it pierces into the darkness, nobody says, well, I mean, you say that's the light. You know, If you're trapped in a cave and you can't see anything and finally rescuers come with lights to light the way out, you don't say, well, you say that that's light, but I'm going to stay here, you know. No, light always bears witness about itself. And up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has borne witness about himself in a variety of ways that are intended to point people to who he is and what he's come to do. He hasn't just make, made claims. You know, it reminds me of that, that passage in the synoptics in which there's this man who's a paralytic. He's lowered down through the rooftop. Jesus sees him, and do you remember what Jesus says to him? Right? They're, they're, they're lowering him down because they, they desire for Jesus to heal him. But do you remember what, the claim Jesus makes right at the outset? Do you remember what he says first? Does he say, you're healed? First thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees that are there can't believe that he said it. Like, their jaws are wide open. Why? Because only God can say that. Like, that's not a claim that someone can just go around making. And it's easy. Like, anyone could go around and say, well, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So who is this guy? And Jesus knows what's going on in their heads. So you remember what he says? He says, like, yeah, you know, anyone can make claims. Anyone can say things. You know, but what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven 
or take up your mat. This guy's been paralyzed his whole life. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, take up your, your, your mat and walk, right? Like, Jesus has given us evidence of his authority. He's shown people these signs of who he is and what he's come to do. They've seen this power represented in signs and wonders, healing the sick, turning water to wine, feeding 20,000 people from five loaves. And yet, what have we seen over and over and over? The people are just not satisfied. Their hearts are never satisfied. Not because they don't see the light, but because they don't like what the light is exposing. They don't like what the light is exposing. Namely, it's exposing their sin. You know, they want the light to expose Roman tyranny and oppression. They don't want the light to deal with them. And I think that's, that's pretty common. We want the light to come. We want Jesus to come and deal with our enemies. You know, deal with all those people out there. But Jesus comes, and as his light shines down, it exposes our need of him. And they don't like this. It's come to deal with their sin. So uh, we see the primary claim, the immediate consequence, the repeated contention. And now, in Jesus' response, he gives them his unique credentials. His unique credentials. Who is he the, to make this claim? Right? I am the light of the world. Verses 14 through 18. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself. My testimony is true, right? Life, light always bears witness about itself. This is a category error. All right, so even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay, those last couple of verses, we're going to hit on a couple of different times, but we need to see, in the previous section here, do you remember? The Pharisees appealed, essentially, to their understanding of the law. And their understanding of the law is that, in a purely judicial sense, in order to establish acceptable testimony in a courtroom kind of situation... You have to have multiple witnesses of a, of a claim. You can't just have one person making, making an accusation. You have to have multiple witnesses. You can't have just one person making a claim. You have to have multiple. Okay. And that makes sense, right? But it's a misunderstanding of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only human being who's able to make these claims. He's creator, their creation. He knows where he came from and where he's going. They don't know this. And as we'll see next week, he's from above. They're from below. They're of this world. He is not of this world, right? He's uniquely qualified to be the redeemer. They're not. So we shouldn't be surprised when we get to verse 15. Set your eyes there. And we see that the primary problem with the contention that they have against Jesus is that they're judging him by human standards. They're judging him by their own Human standards are to put it away that Paul Burr put it last week. They want to put him in a box. They want to place limits on Jesus that essentially like fit from within a worldly criteria or to talk about it in the way that we talked about it in the introduction. They, they want this badly that whoever the Messiah is, he's going to fit within the scope of their own previously believed narrative about the world. 
As another commentator writes, they see his flesh, but never contemplate the possibility that he could be the word made flesh. Even despite the signs and wonders, even despite all of these things that point to the reality of who he is, the authority in which he teaches, they don't even consider the possibility that he could be the word made flesh. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I judge no one. Right? So you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Context here doesn't suggest that, oh, that Jesus won't ever make judgments, that he won't ever judge. We know that that's not true reading the book of Revelation, right? That Jesus will, in the end, come as judge. The, the, the text here isn't even making the same point from chapter 3. Do you remember where Jesus says, I haven't come to condemn the world. The world stands condemned already, which is true. But that's not what this text is saying. Jesus here is simply saying, while they judge according to the flesh, while they judge according to worldly standards, he doesn't judge that way. His judgment is good and right and true precisely because he is who he claims to be. His judgment is good and right and true because of where he comes from. Because he is the light of the world. As creator, he has credentials that they do not have. A light shining into their darkness. He has qualifications that they don't have. This isn't bad news. This is good news. The light has come. At the same time, listen, I think there's a very real, way, there's a very real sense in which when the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, who it is that Jesus is and what it is that he came to do for us that we might know him and believe, when that's proclaimed, often it's either seen as this beautiful, marvelous news or it's seen as repulsive and something to be raged against. Why? Well, it's beautiful and marvelous if you concede that you are blind without him. It's beautiful and marvelous if you see your great need of him. Right? But it's, it's always going to be repulsive if we hear this and we don't like the reality of, of what it says about the human heart. And yet Jesus comes, right, not just to shine a light on our sin, but to actually transform us into his own image to make us beautiful in him. The light has come not just to expose sin, but to transform. So the primary claim, he's the light of the world. With an immediate consequence, he's come to transform everything. It's brought about a repeated contention that he isn't qualified to say such things, so he discloses his unique credentials that he's creator of their creation, that he's light, that they live in darkness, that since they live in darkness, they shouldn't claim sight. Sight is what he can give them, all right? And now he shares another one of these credentials by finally showing his perfect conformity with the Father, which is going to help us understand next week's text quite a bit. So I want to back up. Let's look at verse 16 again. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. All right, so 
In this last section, we actually see Jesus tying up for us the central theme of the whole text, what he means when he tells us that he's the light of the world. And it's this. There is no spirituality apart from Jesus. There is no spirituality apart from Jesus. And this is important for us, listen, especially now. Because, you know, we live in a world that uses this phrase spiritual in so many contexts. Right? Like, someone is spiritual or they describe themselves as spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I hear this a lot. And it often means that it just expresses that they have some kind of an underlying belief about something larger or greater in this world, whether it be an energy force or Mother Earth or some other kind of religious claim. And it's also been hard to push back against. In our culture, it's difficult to, like, challenge that. Because it's like, who are you to say I'm not spiritual? Like, who are you to tell me that I'm not? That's a deeply private thing. It's a deeply personal thing about me that, that I, I, I would describe myself in this way. But Jesus here, again, it's in his mercy. Jesus here says, look, there's no claiming spiritual reality apart from me. There's no claiming that you can see without sight. There's no claiming that you have some kind of light in the midst of your darkness. There's no claiming the Father or any part of the Father, any part of the Father's world Apart from me, because if you knew me, you'd know the Father. But if you don't know me, you'll never know the Father. If you don't know me, you, you don't know him. If you reject me, you reject the Father. There's no claiming to know spiritual reality apart from Jesus. And where is the spiritual reality that Jesus proclaims centered? Verse 20 tells us, Again, it tells us who's in control. It tells us what we've seen a couple of different times now. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Here we see another reference to the cross. Here we see the means by which we might claim spirituality. In other words, far from being able to claim spiritual life and light, Jesus says, we're all lost in spiritual death and darkness. We're separated from God. We're unable to see unable to follow. This is just human nature. But the good news at the heart of the passage is that Jesus is uniquely qualified to grant us the very sight that we lack. And in fact, the good news at the heart of the passage is that not only is he uniquely granted to show us the truth that can save us, to grant us the very salvation that we so desperately need, but that he did this at the cross. That this is why the Father sent him. That the Father sent him for an hour which was to come in which he would take the punishment that we deserved. Bear the darkness upon his own shoulders. The darkness of our hearts falling upon him. The true light of the world. That we might have life in him. That we might see. That we might believe. Right? And so Jesus tells us this morning principally, foundationally, centrally. Spirituality, true spirituality is found at the cross. You know, for those of us who are Christians who tend to compartmentalize and keep Jesus, you know, neatly in, this own, in, in his own like little area of my life, but not everywhere else, Jesus says, no, no, I've come to transform everything. And I do that by way of the cross. 
For those of us who might see Jesus as an add-on, you know, this like inconsequential bit of what we might see as happiness, Jesus says, no, no, I haven't come to validate what you're already doing. I've come to change everything. And I've, I've come to do that for you at the cross. This is the center of it. And for those of us who say, it's so hard for me to believe that I'm blind. It's so hard for me to believe that I'm in that kind of need apart from Jesus. That apart from Christ, I'm in complete need of the Savior. Jesus says, take heart. It's in the midst of your sin that I came for you because I love you. And to demonstrate his love, he went to a cross in which his body was broken and his blood was shed. And so it's this cross that actually gives the Christian, everything the Christian needs for life and growth, it gives those of us who who don't know Christ salvation, entrance into the kingdom, and then continued growth in that kingdom. And so this is why we come to the table weekly. We come to proclaim this good news, proclaim light into darkness, centrally at the cross of Christ, his body broken, his blood shed. And so this is a meal for Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I'd encourage you, make this the first time you, you state publicly your belief in Christ. You throw yourself upon his mercies. You recognize your need of him. For those of us who are here who are believers, I want to encourage you as you come to the table this morning, Come to the table with a recognition of your need for him still. Your reliance on him still for growth and life and light. And so I invite you forward to take the elements back to your seats.